Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, we're sitting down with Amy Campbell, the Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatric Social Work at CUIMC, or the Columbia University Irving Medical Center, in the Division on Substance Use Disorders. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Mariana. It's great to be with you. So, Amy, tell listeners a little bit about yourself. What exactly is it that you do, you know, and what field do you focus on? Sure. Um... So thanks. And, and as you mentioned, I'm an uh, associate professor of clinical psychiatric social work at Columbia Medical Center um, in the Department of Psychiatry um, and, a, and a research scientist at, at the New York State Psychiatric Institute in the Division on Substance Use Disorders. So I'm a social worker by training and really um, bring that perspective to my research. So that's to say a focus on improving health and wellness of folks who have substance use disorders and other co-occurring health challenges um, and and doing that through a multi-systems lens. So uh, that's not just the individual uh, characteristics which impact health outcomes, but the interpersonal, family, community, organizational policy, et cetera, that combine to create the context and environment um, in which people seek services. So, As such, I primarily work on projects that include implementation science processes. And implementation science is the systematic study of the integration of evidence-based practices into routine care in community settings. So that's the barriers, facilitators, strategies that impact whether a program will adopt and roll out new interventions. And so I became interested in implementation science during my doctoral program when I was much more involved in the development and testing of treatments for substance use disorders. But what I came to realize is that evidence-based practices were not being scaled up in the community where people could um, benefit from them. Um, And so it's really started to think about why was this and how we could do better. Um, So that's kind of a a little bit about where I am at this point in, in my career. And how many years have you been training with the behavioral health component with NICA ATC now? Can you give some examples of things that you've done for NICA ATC? Sure. Yeah. So I think I've been involved with the AETC for at least five years now. Um, and I support training on the integration of substance use disorder services um, in clinics and programs. Um, and clinics and programs that have traditionally provided HIV treatment and primary care. Um, So one example, I guess, of this work um, was I was involved in a a training with uh, uh, behavioral health um, in the AETC in New Jersey um, on different types of standardized substance use screening assessments that can be used relatively easily within healthcare settings. Um, So the training included uh, a presentation of the different types of measures available, kind of the pros and cons of each of those, um, and then some role plays to understand how those tools might be used by providers and in, in, in what types of situations. So a key part of that was really thinking about how to integrate the screener into the clinic workflow, who would be responsible, when would the screening be completed, Uh, and thinking about how to engage patients in the discussions around 
riskier use of drugs and alcohol. Um, so successful integration of screening, uh, it's not just a matter of choosing the assessment and, and then kind of launching, but really how that assessment gets integrated and becomes um, routinized um, or part of routine care within that organization. Um, let's see, another, I guess, similar example um, is that I worked directly with a single clinic in New Jersey that was interested in adopting a more comprehensive assessment that could assist with identifying other potential areas of need for their clients, like employment, um, managing legal issues, mental health, or other co-occurring disorders, along with substance use. So as part of that, we held several trainings um, on the assessment um, to kind of learn how it, how it functioned and then discussed how they might integrate this into their workflow and ways to deliver more comprehensive services. So, um, and this also included thinking about um, referral um, sources within their community. Um, who did they have relationships with already? Who, who might they need to do some outreach with to really facilitate um, warm handoffs? So that's just a, that's a couple of examples of trainings that I've been involved with, which have, which have always been really fun working with directly with the clinics. Can you tell folks a little bit about some of the work that you're involved with outside the AATC that informs the work that you do with us? Yeah, I think um, a big part of my current work actually involves partnering with native um, researchers and communities uh, to collaborate on ways to improve access to and acceptability of treatments for substance use disorders. Um, and I think that that work in, informs, you know, everything, everything I do. Um, and colleagues and I recently completed, for example, a smaller study testing an adapted digital intervention in an urban Indian treatment program on the West Coast um, with the goal of understanding, you know, the impact of adding this kind of novel intervention to standard care. Um, another example, which I think pertains to some of the implementation work um, we've done with the AETC, um, I'm working with Dr. Camilla Venner, who's from the University of New Mexico on a study to develop an implementation intervention that really centers culture and local community practices to increase the up uptake of medications for opioid use disorders. Um, so this intervention was developed with a national advisory board and in collaboration with partners from our four clinical sites that serve tribal communities. And then we'll be testing the program level and in implementation intervention beginning later this fall. So we are hoping to be able to identify strategies that incorporate indigenous knowledge uh, with useful components of Western medicine within each local community to improve con consumer outcomes. Um, and so again, um, that type of work is really applicable to all types of other organizations and really thinking about how to locally tailor things. I know you've done a lot of work on the opioid crisis and overdose in particular. Are there new developments that healthcare providers should be aware of? Uh, well, I think of note in the last week, um, uh, since it just came out last week, I'll mention it today, um, is the, the CDC reported provisional data on drug overdoses in 2020. Um, so we knew that the combined health crises of, of, of COVID-19 um, and drug overdose was going to be concerning. Um, but 
we're actually seeing some pretty shocking increases of about 30% um, increase in overdoses from 2019 to 2020. Um, that's an estimate of about 93,000 overdose deaths in 2020. And this is the highest ever recorded and the biggest increase since 1999. And so it's thought that these increases were exacerbated by, of course, by the pandemic and pandemic related factors, um, some of which included access to treatment and, and accessibility issues, but also certainly significant stressors brought on by the pandemic. Um, there's also the continued proliferation of fentanyl, um, and this is the highly potent synthetic opioid, which is now reported across the US in drug supplies, um, and not only in illicit heroin and other opioids, but in stimulants as well, including cocaine and methamphetamine. So that's, um, that's a big piece of what we're seeing now in terms of overdoses. Um, thinking more locally, um, the, the preliminary data shows that New York saw a 32% increase in overdose deaths. So um, at about 3,000 overdose deaths in 2020. Um, and New Jersey saw less of an increase at 1%, um, but they're still reporting about 2,800 overdose deaths in 2020. So I, I think it's just really important that uh, folks understand that you know we're, we're really at a peak of this crisis. Um, and it's, so it's kind of a all hands on, on deck moment, I think. Um, so, you know, it would say really a need for federal, state, local health departments, as well as healthcare providers across the spectrum to um, kind of demonstrate the political will, the practice know-how know -how to really be doing all they can to support folks that use drugs. Um, and for that, I would say it's, you know, it's to increase safety, um, reduce risk for folks who are using drugs and to really make those continuum of services access, as accessible as possible. Um, so this would include things like the expansion of naloxone distribution, for example, um, in as many service locations as possible um, and improved access to FDA approved medications for opioid use disorder. So methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone. Um, and I guess I would just say one, you know, one thing, um, I'll just note one thing clinical programs should be aware of is that there, um, this spring there was an easing of requirements to obtain a waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and so people with prescribing privileges can now request a DEA um, waiver without first getting the eight hour waiver training. Um, and it's actually 24 hours of training that was required for nurse practitioners and PAs. Um, and so um, folks can now just request that um, waiver to prescribe buprenorphine up to 30 patients. And so that's one barrier that has recently been reduced and that programs and, and providers can really take advantage of to um, further make available at least uh, buprenorphine for treating opioid use disorder. I would say those are a couple of key kind of recent developments that, that we should be aware of. Yeah, those are some scary numbers to hear. Um, you know, a question that comes to mind is, how do you think about that whole body of work that you're involved in and, you know, have been involved in and how can that best be translated into HIV care settings? Yeah, so I think for me, as, I, as I've mentioned, it's really trying to figure out how do we best reduce risk um, and barriers to care. Um, and, and, and implementation science is really all about, I think, those things as well. And so um, this is in the context of 
healthcare in general. So uh, removing treatment silos and becoming more integrated in terms of the services that we provide. Um, so HIV is a good example. Um, you know, HIV care has historically um, been separated from general health care or primary care and kind of specialized HIV clinics. Um, and in some ways, this is similar to services for people who, who use drugs. So treatment programs have typically been kept very distinct from general health care um, and not integrated at all. You've got, you go to a separate program down, you know, down the street or in another neighborhood, and that's where you get those care. That's where you get that addiction care. So what we're coming to understand, I think, is that specialty services um, actually can be effectively delivered in generalized healthcare settings. Um, but it does require planning, um, sometimes additional training, um, sometimes changing cultures uh, within organizations to address some pre preconceived ideas. Um, stigma is a, is a major issue and, and then providing support at the organizational level to successfully integrate these services, as I've mentioned, into, into the daily workflows. So it's really that kind of systematic work um, that can really help us to do this um, integrated care more successfully. Um, so what I've seen in my work um, providing technical assistance to different types of programs to adopt and implement services for substance use disorders um, is really the need for kind of a few essential factors. Um, so one is buy-in from leadership. So a commitment from organizational leaders that, that whatever service we're going to be implementing is a priority um, and that we have uh, their support. Um, the other thing is a strong and what the implementation literature calls champion. Um, but this is really that key person within the organization that's going to kind of lead the effort and keep it at the front of the priority list and um, follow through um, with getting something up and running. Um, and, and then these things are really combined with helping the organization to set up um, a, a blueprint or strategic plan um, to integrate the service into um, routine care that really um, allows the program to feel comfortable and confident about what they're doing. So it's, it's really that kind of systematic strategies to put in place to, to really do this integrated care well. But um, I think the point being is that it absolutely can be done. Um, and sometimes technical assistance is needed for that. For people who feel, you know, hesitant to try to implement these services for their HIV clients, is there anything that you'd say to them to assuage their concerns? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's usually kind of where we start, right? I mean, and the one thing I usually start with is that it's totally normal to feel to feel overwhelmed and to have concerns. So change is hard, right? Change is hard at the individual level. It's hard at the organizational level, which is, you know, much more complex. Um, and so as I've mentioned before, the other thing I usually say is, but, but there are things we can do. Um, there are strategies that are available to help, um, to help move forward. Um, and that one size doesn't fit all. These, you know, different strategies or processes can be tailored based on what, the goals are of that particular organization, what they're looking to do, how much they're um, wanting to expand. Um, and then I think the second thing that kind of helps is to um, just let programs know that you can start slow, 
doesn't have to be, you know, tomorrow we're going to start seeing a hundred new clients using this different service, right? We can start by seeing, you know, two or three clients and then thinking about, okay, well, how did that, how did that go? How was, how were our workflows? Let's kind of pick those apart and, and think a little bit about whether we need to make some modifications, whether we need some additional consultation. Um, and so I think that often helps programs to kind of take a breath and, and, and jump in knowing that it's not going to be, you know, zero to 60 right away. Um, and I would just mention just a couple of key technical assistance resources around substance use in particular um, that organizations can access to um, really assist in developing their um, substance use treatment services uh, and including um, the delivery of medications for opioid use disorder, which is what I've worked on kind of most recently. So one good resource is the Opioid Response Network. Um, and this is a service funded by SAMHSA. And uh, they provide prevention, treatment, and recovery training and technical assistance across the US for both opioids and stimulants. Um, and they, uh, the, and the nice thing about the Opioid Response Network is they really use um, locally placed technology transfer specialists that address each technical assistance request that comes in. So it's very, very localized. Um, and in fact, uh, the technology transfer specialist that manages um, requests that come in from New York and New Jersey is housed here at Columbia in the Addiction Technology and Transfer Center. Um, and so to make that request, folks can go to the opioidresponsenetwork.org. Um, now I sound like a, a little bit like a PSA, uh, but the opioidresponsenetwork.org, and then you just click on the request button, you fill out a short form that takes about two minutes, and then a technology transfer specialist gets back within one business day to talk further about what your, what your needs are. So that's, that's one good resource. Um, a second resource is, is called PCSS, or the Providers Clinical Support System, also SAMHSA-funded SAMHSA resource. And this one is really much more specific to opioid use disorders and providers, um, both behavioral health providers as well as medical providers. Um, you have hundreds of trainings, webinars, also opportunities for mentorship and um, implementation support. And so uh, they can be accessed at pcssnow.org. So just a few kind of good places to go for, um, for technical assistance that can be really tailored and, and, and also focus on those implementation pieces that we've been talking about. Yeah, those sound like really great resources for healthcare providers to know about. And this has been such an interesting conversation, but you know, we do have to wrap up. So do you have any final thoughts? Well, thanks. Listen, no, it's been really great talking with you today. And I, no, I would just add that you know, integrating services for people who, who's, who use drugs or have substance use disorders is really needed and it's also really doable. Um, so I would say, you know, talk within your organization about what your goals and objectives are and then reach out to um, available technical assistance options, including the AETC, Opioid Response Network, PCSS and others. Um, and I just think we, you know, we all need to do what we can to support um, folks who are using drugs to do so safely, and then also to provide a range of services to each, to fit each individual's need. So I would end with that. 
Amy, thank you so much for joining us today and highlighting, you know, just how important behavioral health is when it comes to HIV care. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nekaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.